Welcome to Mormon Discussion. Grateful to have you on today. We have an interview today scheduled with Greg Prince, but before we get to that, I want to share a few thoughts with you. First off, thank you to our sponsor, Costa Rica Travel Pass. I am indeed grateful for all that, uh, that you have done uh, for this podcast and hope that my listeners will thank you as well by the, scheduling their next vacation to Costa Rica through you at CostaRicaTravelPass.com. This podcast survives on the support of the listeners. And while I am indeed grateful for the listeners who have donated to this program, in order to keep this program going throughout the year, we need to keep that going. I'm hopeful that every listener might consider this, and it would make it really simple. If every listener would go to the website at mormondiscussion.podbean.com, and on the right-hand side, about a third of the way down, there is a place to donate through PayPal. If every listener would donate $2, this podcast gets between 300 and 800 listens per episode right now. And with that kind of listenership, if everybody would donate $2, we would definitely survive through 2013 and likely could go into 2014 and maybe even 2015 without having to ask for any more funds. I, uh, I hope every listener will, will take me up on that. $2 is a small cost when you consider the time that goes into putting this podcast together, the time to record, the time to edit, the time to publicize it. I'm grateful for each of you, and I hope you find this podcast to be a strength on your journey and your faith crisis and an enrichment to your testimony as we discuss at times the principles of the gospel. Our interview today is scheduled Greg Prince, author of David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism. Greg Prince offers a deeply nuanced view that absolutely leads with faith and helps as we listen to build our own testimonies. We now turn over our time to our interview with Greg Prince. Greg Prince, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? Doing well, thank you. Excellent. Glad to have you on the program today. Thought we'd start off by uh, giving you a chance to just share for a moment with my listeners. I bet almost all of them will know who you are, but for the few who maybe don't, would you mind sharing a little bit about uh, yourself, maybe just some background on who you are, and then if you don't mind going right into uh, some growing up uh, experiences in the church? Well, I'm a seventh generation Mormon. Uh, the Prince line was converted in South Africa in the 1850s when they were baptizing probably into the dozens down there. But nonetheless, the princes were among them, came to Utah, uh, lived for a year in Kaysville, and then were sent down in the second wave to colonize St. George in 1862. So church history runs thick in my veins. My father was the first generation after the princes went to St. George to leave. He went to dental school in Southern California in 1939, and then after serving in World War II, uh, settled in Los Angeles. That's where I grew up. So all of my formative years were outside of the Great Basin. I did spend two years at Dixie Junior College, which is what it was called then, from 1965 to 1967, served a mission in the Brazilian South Mission from 67 to 69, then went to dental school and subsequently graduate school in pathology at UCLA. I uh, got married in 1975, excuse me, in 73 and 75, moved to Maryland for a postdoctoral fellowship at the National Institutes of Health and have lived in Maryland for the last what, 38 years. In the church, there are a lot of difficult issues that we encounter. 
And as I was looking into some of the things that you've uh, spoken about and talked about, uh, written, uh, I was glancing at one of the things was the PBS interview that you did. And in there, you talked a lot about um, how we deal with the difficult issues and why the church does things a certain way. Can I ask you why you think we're afraid to deal with the, with the tough issues? I think that Mormonism, if not unique, is at least amongst a very small number of religious traditions that is new, well-documented, and tied to history in a way that the older traditions are not, largely because of the extent of the documentation, partly because the narrative of itself is historical. Uh, the Joseph Smith story is laden with history interlaced with theology, so you really can't escape it. And then when you consider that we have been compulsive record keepers almost since day one, uh, you can't really escape from your own history, even though we have tried. Right. Our story has made it difficult to turn it into a, a mythological uh, storyline. It has got the history attached. If we had the extent of documentation for the birth of Christianity that we do for the birth of Mormonism, I think there would be a lot different perceptions out there of Christianity. But that's the way it is, and so we have to deal with it. Gotcha. One of the things I thought I would touch on and give you a moment to maybe share some thoughts, a lot of my listeners struggle with the difficult issues in the church. Many of them are either in a faith crisis or have just uh, come out of it and and are obviously sensitive to the topic. What are your personal views on the Book of Mormon historicity? I have moved from one pole to the other pole over the last 30-plus mm, years. Uh, I think that the first inkling that I had that this was an issue that I needed to take seriously was at a time in the early 1980s when there was a remarkable convergence of minds in Maryland. Lester Bush became my closest friend as soon as we moved to Maryland in 1975. A few years later, Tony Hutchinson came into town. Tony was a student at BYU, got bachelor's and master's degrees there in classical studies, and then wanted to do biblical studies. So uh, a very savvy advisor at BYU said, Tony, the best program for you in this country is going to be at Catholic University. And so that's where Tony went. Well, for a full year, Lester and Tony and I would get together for dinner one night every week and just start to thrash through all of what then were the really compelling, thorny questions relating to Mormon history and theology, and this was one of them. Uh, Tony was being schooled in the state-of-the-art of biblical studies. It didn't take more than a couple degrees deflection from that for him to start to concentrate on Mormon studies, and Lester and I were essentially feeding off the crumbs that fell off Tony's table. It was such a rich feast that he was dealing with. And that's when I really became aware of the problems with the traditional story of the Book of Mormon being a literal translation of an ancient record. You know, it, it's one of those topics that when, you're, when you've got a lot of people in the church who are struggling with faith, and obviously the goal is to get everybody to press forward towards Christ, the more flexibility we can give individuals on that path uh, to be able to hang in there and to lead with faith, uh, the better. And that sounds like that's 
that's kind of the angle you come from as well. Yeah, and a problem that we have in Mormonism is common to many other religious traditions, Christian and otherwise, and that is fundamentalism tends to force you into false dichotomies, that you tend to say either it's A or it's B, and A and B are poles apart from each other. It doesn't readily allow you that middle ground, which is really where most of us wind up living. Uh, and this is one of those issues that we tend to say either the Book of Mormon is a literal translation of an ancient record or, and you can fill in the or on that easily, um, that doesn't leave you the room that you need to negotiate what is a reasonable position that's also consistent with the facts. Your thoughts, you know, in the last couple of years, the church has made some, some pretty dynamic changes. They've lowered the missionary age. They brought in a new youth curriculum, and from the word that I'm hearing, there's a lot of uh, other curriculums on the way that'll follow. There is the recent uh, changes in missionary work, which we just experienced uh, two weeks ago. There's been the changes in the scriptures, which I think have been a lot more friendly towards uh, the difficult issues. And uh, and there's also some talk of the upcoming um, dealing with difficult issues from the church on their own website. Your thoughts on all of that? Well, I think it's all going in a good direction. The question is, how far will it go? How long will it take to get there? And the most important question is, where will that meet the consumer, if I can put it in those terms? It's one thing for well-intentioned people within a hierarchy to send a message out that they hope the people will receive with joy. But it's quite another for the consumer who is having difficulty with this whole thing to receive that message and have the message resolve the difficulties. And sometimes those two intentions don't meet in the middle. I want to follow that up with, what things do you think have to be done to make the church a place where members of the church can feel, for those who are struggling, can feel comfortable uh, remaining in Mormonism? Well, I think one of the first things that could be done is to send a message out that, look, it's okay to doubt. To doubt is not to sin. Uh, that would send the signal out to people wherever they are in these questions of doctrine or of history that you're not alone in this. We all are grappling with it, and church leaders in the past in moments of candor, have acknowledged that they have had their own doubts in their earlier years, and perhaps they have doubts currently. I think that would be message number one, because then that sets the stage for you to start going down the list of specific questions and dealing with them in a sane manner. Do you think Elder Holland's talk accomplished that? I mean, it seems to me like Elder Holland's talk is the very first talk I've ever heard that even hinted at that idea. I think it's a step in the right direction, but I don't think that any one action is going to win the day. I think this is going to be a process and not an event. So it's going to take a whole bunch of talks like that in other ways to address that issue. I think so. I think that you have to change an entire culture that because it has drifted towards fundamentalism for so many decades has not sent out that message. We're with Greg Prince today, and he is the author of the book, David O. McKay and the Rise of Mormonism. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about your book, and I want to start off by the main source that your information comes from. Would you mind telling my listeners who Claire Middlemiss is? 
Clara Middlemas became David O. McKay's secretary in 1935, a year after he joined the first presidency. She remained his secretary until his death in 1970. Uh, early on, she asked him at one point if she could look at his pocket diary because she wanted to clarify some data point, probably a date. And when she looked at it, she noticed that uh, it began earnestly in January and by about February tailed off. And he said, yes, I have good intentions every year, but then the press of activities in the office uh, gets the upper hand, and I don't write the way I would like to write. So she offered to begin keeping his diary. He accepted the offer. And from, uh, I think, 1936 until his death, why she kept his diaries. Uh, eventually, they amounted to about 40,000 pages of typescript. So it it probably is the most extensive diary of any church president, uh, and it certainly is a treasure trove of information. How long did it take you to work on the book? Ten years, eight years of research, two years of writing. Uh, wow. I fell into this project quite literally. A new mission president came back to Washington, D.C. By a fluke, he and his family wound up living within our ward, and only because of that did I even make his acquaintance. I was working on the priesthood book at the time, and uh, when we struck up a friendship with Bob and Janet Wright, the mission president, we had him over for dinner a couple times. I mentioned this project, gave him a couple of the draft chapters, and the next time they were over for dinner, he mentioned that his aunt was Claire Middlemas. And he said Claire had intended to write President McKay's biography, and that was the main motivator for 35 years in her keeping this enormously rich record that included not just the diary, but over 200 volumes of scrapbooks as well, and about six or 7,000 pages of transcripts of virtually every talk that he gave during that period. So she really had had the dream of being his biographer, but didn't have the time while he was alive because she was so pressed with office duties. And after his death, her own health failed. So near the end of her life, she told Bob that she was giving to him all of her papers, which amounted to oh, well over 100,000 pages with the hope that at some point he would see to it that a biography was written. So he came to me and said, would you help me with this? Uh, unfortunately, not long after that, he became ill, and his role in the biography was quite severely limited because of his illness. But that's how we got into the project. Once I had a possession of the papers then it became apparent pretty quickly that what I needed to do was to supplement that with the reminiscences of people still around who had been close enough to the president to have something meaningful to say about it. So we did uh, about 200 interviews. That was surprising to me because we started the project in 1995. That meant that President McKay had been dead for 25 years and he died at the age of 96. So just the fact that there were that many people still around who had recollections of him was surprising to us. How do you even begin to sort through that many pages of material uh, to put all that together? Mostly the old-fashioned way, 
and that is line by line cut and paste. That part I was able to do on the computer, so at least it facilitated it. But uh, all of the material that I went through, I would glean the important passages, put them in the computer word for word. Uh, I did complete transcripts of all 200 interviews, and then went line by line through everything and did a cut and paste and built subject files. When I was completely done with that process, then I took a step back and looked at the subject files. There were about 100 and said, what's important? And 16 of those rose to a level of significance, and those became the 16 chapters. Let's talk a little bit about uh, President McKay. One of the things I think your book talks about and, and things I've read in other places is the gentleness and softness of, of President McKay. And there's a discussion of how flexible he was, how um, he wasn't this letter of the law guy. And yet at the same time, we have correlation kind of going on in the church, which I think little by little we're kind of getting a, away from that extreme can you maybe explain to my listeners the dichotomy of seeing correlation in the church, but also seeing President McKay for the uh, the, the non-rigid guy that he was? Well, drop back uh, chronologically when you talk about correlation. Uh, McKay went into the uh, Quorum of the Twelve in 1906. The first attempt at correlation was 1908. And he was tasked by President Joseph F. Smith to be part of that committee. There were several subsequent rounds uh, in the 1920s and the 1940s attempting to correlate the church. Now, what that meant at that time was that most of what I grew up with in the church, I'm 65 years old, came about because of grassroots initiatives that succeeded and were then centralized by the church. All of the auxiliary organizations came about in that way. It wasn't top-down, it was bottom-up. So it was a very vibrant but semi-autonomous church organization. The auxiliary organizations really were kingdoms unto themselves. Uh, one of the people I interviewed was Lynn Richards, who was a son of Stephen L. Richards, who had been in the First Presidency. Lynn had also been in the general superintendency, as they called it in those days, of the Sunday school. And I said, so how did you decide what your lesson manuals would be? And he said, we just decided for ourselves. And we commissioned the authors to write those. And I said, did you have to get permission from anybody? No. Well, that works up to a point, but uh, you can see the potential for overlap, for duplication, perhaps even for contradiction, if these messages aren't all being checked out against each other. And that was the situation. As the church got larger, it became more and more of a problem. So when President McKay started the modern correlation movement in the early 1960s, his intent was just to smooth out the wrinkles to coordinate things so that there wasn't overlap, so that there weren't contradictions in mission-oriented content. And he put Harold B. Lee in charge of it. Lee had a much different idea of what correlation needed to be, and to him, it tended to be more control than coordination. That was the pathway that subsequently it went down. McKay saw this 
and wasn't particularly happy with that direction, but his health was failing, and so he was somewhat limited in terms of what he could do to rechannel it in the direction that he had intended. Um, now, correlation has been both a good news and a bad news thing. Organizationally, it was essential because the church was getting to a size that it needed to have that kind of um, smooth structure to it. Uh, so give credit to President Lee on that account. Uh, one of the things that he started to do that was really continued after his death was transforming the church from, for want of a better term, a monarchy to a constitutional monarchy. What I mean by that is that up until the death of President McKay, the president of the church had been like the president of the United States in that he was both head of state and head of government. What Harold B. Lee did was to begin the process of taking things out of the first presidency and moving them into the Quorum of the Twelve. Now, let me restate that. Up until President McKay's death, virtually everything in the church channeled directly into the first presidency. The Quorum of the Twelve had staff functions, and those functions were primarily to speak in general conference and to conduct state conferences. That was it. None of the organizations reported to the Quorum of the Twelve. So what Lee began was the process of taking those things out of the First Presidency, putting them directly under the Quorum of the Twelve, which is where most of the Church's programs reside today. So as a result, today you have Thomas Monson as the head of state. You have Boyd Packer, the president of the Quorum of the Twelve, as the head of government. I think that was an essential and overall healthy process. The downside to me of correlation is that it has tended to become the thought police. And I don't think that that has done us a great service. You speak in your book about President McKay, obviously being a prophet, seer, and revelator, that's going to come with spiritual experiences. And you share in your book uh, several spiritual experiences that President McKay uh, had. And I wondered if you might at least touch on one or two of your favorites of, of some of these experiences that, uh, uh, that the prophet of the church encountered, in regardless of what time in his life that those happened. I'm not sure which ones I put in there and which ones I didn't. One of them that resonates with me perhaps more now than when I published the book was one that Arnold Freeberg, the great Mormon artist, told me. Freeberg was commissioned by Bertha Howells, who was the general president of the primary, to paint some depictions of episodes from the Book of Mormon. Everybody in the church is familiar with those paintings. For years and years, they published reproductions of them in the Book of Mormon. Eventually, I think there were 12 paintings. Well, Arnold said that as he was working on the concepts for these, he was consulting with President McKay. And President McKay said, I don't want the personage of the Savior included in any of your paintings. And Arnold said, well, Jesus is central to the Book of Mormon message. McKay's response was, the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. Now, if you go into any chapel in the church today, you're probably going to see pictures of Jesus all over the place. That's not where David O. McKay was coming from. And I think we've lost something by trying to close artificially that gap between the finite and the infinite. 
that if you're willing to maintain that distance, if you're willing to look with awe upon the infinite, I think that puts you in a better and certainly a more humble place. So that's one of my favorite, even though I'm not sure if that got into the book. Does does that thought process with President McKay, I read an article a couple of weeks ago on how uh, President McKay had the kind of the impact on us not having uh, crosses or crucifixes used at all within our, our church. Is that Does your thought process on telling that story kind of play into how he maybe kept that from being the case as well? I think he was always very careful in trying to overuse symbolism. Now, any religion has to use some kind of symbolism because the whole point of an organized religion is to give the believers some kind of access to the infinite. And how do you do that? Well, you may do it through ceremony. You may do it through words. You may do it through visual representations. So you have to give the believer something tangible that becomes a touchstone to the infinite. But I think that President McKay was probably uh, a little more introspective about what those symbols should be than perhaps some other people have been. We are with uh, Gregory Prince, author of David O. McKay in The Rise of Modern Mormonism. In your book, you paint uh, President McKay as being very forward-thinking. Would you mind sharing an example or two of of how we can see him in, in that light? I think that the most courageous example of that came very early in his presidency. Now, to give you a little bit of background there, he had probably as much, maybe more experience with the foreign church, the non-North American church, than any of his colleagues within the general authorities. He had been on a mission to Scotland in the late 1890s. He had, at the request of President Grant, gone on a an around-the-world trip in 1920 and 21 with the intent of visiting all of the foreign missions in the world. He visited all except South Africa because it was just too far out of the way. And then a couple of years later, he was sent to the UK and presided over the European mission for a couple of years. So by the time he became the church president, he really had a good feel firsthand for what the international church was. And one of the major difficulties uh, was that for over a century, the policy of the church had been one of gathering, that Zion was defined geographically as the Great Basin. And if you were a righteous convert, then your goal would be to travel to Zion and establish your residency there for a number of reasons, one being that all of the arable land got used up pretty quickly, another being that there just weren't that many economic opportunities. Uh, By the middle of the 20th century, it became apparent that that was a policy that wasn't working real well anymore. Now, President McKay became the president in 1951 and immediately set about looking for opportunities to put temples outside of North America. That had never been done before. Once he identified property in England, then he made a trip over there to look at the property, held a press conference, and said the policy of gathering is now being reversed. He didn't use those words, but that's what he was saying. 
he waited until he could give the promise to the European saints that they would not lose any blessings by staying where they were instead of migrating to the Great Basin. And the key to that was the promise of temples. Well, what he did in the process was unprecedented before or since, and that was to build a temple where there was not an existing stake. It never has happened in the history of the church except those three temples, which were in England, Switzerland, and New Zealand. So he took a chance in all three of those areas. Essentially, it was predating Field of Dreams, and he was saying, if we build it, they will stay. That's incredible. And when you think about it, like you say, that that's never been done again. And, and that worked out, correct? I mean, all three areas, uh, the temple was a, a, a place to, to help bring people into the church. Yes. It, it still took a few years because uh, in the years after World War II, Europe was economically distressed, particularly in the United Kingdom. And so the converts who had the capability of emigrating to the United States tended to do so because they could see that the grass was greener over there. So it took a few years, but the message was there, and gradually it took root, and now, uh, presto, we have more stakes outside of the United States than inside of the United States. One of the other things that the book speaks about, that you're writing about, there's a there's a little discussion in the book about how President McKay was aware of how some members found the temple experience to be a struggle. And in that being relayed to him uh, impressed him enough to, to do something about it. Would you mind – the only reason I'm asking this question, and I obviously want to be sensitive to the temple, but I know my first time going through the temple, and I love the temple today, but my first time going through caught me way off guard. And it was an experience that – um, I thought was awkward and a little troubling to me. And I know other members have those same feelings. And I want to just speak for, have you speak just for a moment about how President McKay was sensitive to that? Well, in part, he was sensitive because his own first experience had been a little bit troubling to him. And he remembered that. So he he was sensitized at an early time and got resensitized later on with the very types of feedback that you just spoke of. The major changes in the temple um, really didn't happen until later on. 1990 was when uh, the most recent major changes were made. But he certainly was aware of that and I think tried to send out the word through the general authorities, through temple presidencies, to be sensitive towards this and to try to identify people who were having difficulty with it, take them aside and help them make that transition. You walk away from uh, any project that we that we undertake, and it, it makes a difference in us. And obviously going into this, I don't know how well you knew President McKay. Never met him. Gotcha. And and I don't know how much you were aware of his, his life as far as reading other books or studying up on him. Uh, I knew... Almost nothing from having read about him, but I certainly was raised with him being ever-present in our consciousness. I was born in 1948, so there was no other church president that I knew of in all of my formative years. I returned from my mission in August of 1969. He died in January 1970. So uh, this was our guy. Yeah, so your entire growing up was 
with President McKay as the prophet, seer, and revelator of the church. Sure, and uh, general conferences were televised in those years. At least uh, the Sunday morning session would be televised in Southern California, and the priesthood session would be by direct wire broadcast to the stake center. So uh, we heard his voice continually during my formative years. Even though I never met him personally, he was a major presence in my life and had this... um, pervasive, benign influence, I think, on the entire church. People from that era to this day will refer longingly to what they call the McKay Church. And and his persona was part of the overall picture. I presume that you have heard the phrase, he looked like a prophet. Right. Uh, That phrase I have heard innumerable times. Now, think about it for a minute. If you were to ask a non-Mormon what that means, that person would probably conjure up a mental image of an ancient person with a long beard and long robes walking out of the Old Testament. Well, that's exactly the opposite physical image of David O. McKay. So, and then think about any other president of the LDS Church before or since. I've not heard anybody else use that phrase to describe anyone other than David O. McKay. Right. He wore the, the white clothes, the white hair, and uh, it almost gave him a majestic look. Not oh, that he represented a pre-existing stereotype. It's that he created an archetype that nobody before or since really reached. It, it was rather extraordinary. He had some self-consciousness as to what the power of his persona was. And in an age before the professional handler, uh, he was, I think, far more aware than other people would have been of the importance of persona. And I think that he cultivated that image. We interviewed his barber, and his barber said that uh, President McKay's wife called him one time and scolded him because he'd cut the hair too short. She said, you leave it long. I wanted to lead that into kind of a final question about the book, and then I want to ask you just a couple other little questions as we kind of begin to wrap up. So you go into this book with a with kind of a surface understanding of President McKay, basically the same experience that other members of the church have in listening to him and being aware of him as the prophet of the church which you have membership in. As you work on this large project, which takes up 10 years of, of your life, what things do you walk away with that have changed in, in how you see President McKay? I have a much, much greater appreciation for the benign countenance that this man exerted over the entire church. That is not an easy job. It is not a job to which anybody should aspire. Uh, And it's not a job that he took upon himself. But once he was in that role, I think that he always carried out that role with dignity, with humility, uh, and with a lot of empathy and tolerance to those whose views differed from his own. That may have been the single aspect of his character that we most ought to go back and try to recapture and to emulate ourselves. And that is, his Mormonism was a Mormonism with a very wide tent. It could accommodate the far right, it could accommodate the far left, and that was just fine with him. I interviewed David King, former congressman, ambassador, 
he later became president of the D.C. Temple and a patriarch, a dear friend, now deceased. Uh, but he was a Democrat, and not long after he was elected to the Congress in 1958, he went into President McKay and said, you know, I get a lot of heat even in a Sunday school class because I'm a Democrat. Can't you do something to send a message out that this church needs to be diverse politically? And McKay's response was, have you looked at my two counselors, both of whom are Democrats? So he so he put the message pretty much uh, right in everybody's face. But the problem is is that a lot of us as Latter Day Saints aren't aren't paying attention to that kind of stuff, uh, and it's unfortunate. We wish we all were more aware of uh, the diversity in the church rather than just seeing things as a as a black and white uh, line drawn in the sand. Well, th- this is why President Uchtdorf's talk, this most recent general conference, was opening the windows and letting in the fresh air because he was very explicit in talking about not just that there is diversity in the church, he said there needs to be diversity in the church, otherwise we won't prosper. Yeah, and I think Elder Uchtdorf, almost all of his conference talks conference talks have been um, along that light as well. Well, I so think there is... may be a parallel between him and President McKay in the sense that both of them didn't, represent a traditional American view of the world and of the church. Dieter Uchtdorf, of course, is a German national, and by virtue of his prior profession as a Lufthansa pilot, had visited every corner of the globe repeatedly. President McKay didn't have as much international experience, but for his own time, it was unprecedented where he had traveled and how much time he had spent abroad. And I think that was key to both men's worldviews that were not only accepting of, but were endorsing diversity as being really the spice of the church. Right. The, the more we get out and see different people and understand the journeys that others are walking, the more empathetic or sympathetic we are to uh, where they're at, the struggles they have, and it's it's much more difficult to paint the world in a uh, in a dichotomy or in a black and white uh, frame. Yeah, and this this shouldn't be surprising because it's not a new message. Go back and look at Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, where he talks about the need for diversity. He likens the church to the body of Christ and is really chiding the people for thinking that everybody should be an eye or everybody should be a hand. And he finishes that sermon by saying, look, the least attractive parts, folks, might wind up being the most important ones. So cool it. I want to ask you a little bit, just getting away from the book for a moment, in another uh, project that you worked on, I believe it was an article, I'm trying to remember offhand, but it was Development of the Priesthood uh, that you had written, correct? Yeah, that was a book. Okay. And the one thing I've, I've been doing my own research on recently, I, I joined the church when I was 17. I'm 34 years old. And when I joined the church, I was taught that 12-year-olds get ordained to the priesthood, and to the Aaronic priesthood, and then at the age of 18 or 19, one gets ordained to the Melchizedek priesthood. And there's this assumption for young people like, like myself when I joined that the way things are currently is the way things have always been. And when we talk about the priesthood, that's not really the case. Would you mind just for a few minutes uh, sharing with us just kind of a, a surface understanding of how the priesthood developed? Well, 
What you have in Joseph Smith is a man who has a vision, and I speak of that in broad terms, not as a single event, but really as a continuing process. And that's what was the birth of Mormonism, is Joseph Smith having that vision and translating that vision into a tangible form that resonated with his followers. The need for authority was paramount in his mind very early on, and that led to some events in 1829 of restoration of authority. Now, very shortly after the church was founded, Sidney Rigdon converted to it, and Rigdon brought to Joseph Smith a second dimension of what became priesthood, and that is the idea of gifts of the Spirit being part of a formal structure. Rigdon was a Campbellite prior to joining Mormonism, but he broke off from Alexander Campbell over this issue. Campbell said gifts of the Spirit were fine then and there, but they have no place in the modern church. And Rigdon said, au contraire, they are part of the true church and they must be here. And that was the uh, the cause of the schism between the two men. Well, Rigdon was converted in Ohio in the fall of 1830 and within weeks traveled to New York to meet Joseph Smith for the first time. Within three weeks of when he met Joseph Smith, he became the scribe for what became Section 38 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Part of that uh, revelation is virtually a quotation from the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. The scenario anciently was that the resurrected Christ met with the disciples and said, now you have to go out and convert the world. But before you do that, you have to tarry in Jerusalem until you're endowed with power from on high. Well, think about that. The guys he was talking to, he had ordained while he was alive. They were already authorized to work in the ministry. What he was saying was, to step it up to the next level, to go out and take the gospel to all the world, you need something you don't have yet, and that is this endowment of power. Well, Rigdon brought that second half to the attention of Joseph Smith, who immediately jumped on it. And priesthood, which had not been called by that word yet, came to be a couplet of authority and power. Now, we occasionally will say that in the church. If you ask somebody for a definition of priesthood, that just roll off their tongue. It's the power and authority of the act in the name of Jesus or of God. They don't think about what that really means. The power and the authority are not synonymous with each other. That is the epitome of what priesthood should be, but we usually only get it half right. And the half that we get right is the automatic part, and that is the authority. If a man is ordained to the priesthood. He can perform a baptism at the same time that he is out there committing adultery, to use an extreme example. Will the church disavow that act that he performed and require that person to be rebaptized? The answer is no. The church recognizes that because until and if that man is stripped of his priesthood authority, the ordinance that he performed will be recognized as being legitimate. If that same man, however, lays hands on somebody who is ill and pronounces a blessing of healing, what's the likelihood that that blessing will be fulfilled? That's the difference between authority and power. 
So if you can appreciate that couplet of priesthood coming forward, then you're really getting the essence of what it's all about. The form is of much less importance to me, and it was of much less importance to Joseph Smith, and it evolved over a period of several years. Uh, the terms Aaronic priesthood and Melchizedek priesthood didn't exist until 1835. The offices that were in existence when the church was founded consisted only of three, elder, priest, and teacher. Other things were grafted on subsequently. Uh, Sidney Rigdon brought the two offices with him that had been the only two offices recognized in the Campbellite Church, which now is the Disciples of Christ, and those offices were bishop and deacon. Rigdon, a new convert, goes to New York, meets Joseph Smith, and within two months, the office of bishop is introduced to the church, and the first bishop in the church, Edward Partridge, who had been in Rigdon's congregation in Ohio, was ordained to be the bishop, and he was ordained by Rigdon, not by Joseph Smith. Think about that. So all of that, it's, it's a lengthy way of getting into this to say, don't get too hung up over the form that priesthood has taken, because there was a lot of fluidity early on in that. What we need to focus on more is what is the essence of priesthood. And it consists right. of those two things, that there is a formal authorization, which is uh, virtually identical to what a government would do in authorizing certain officials to perform certain tasks. If you go back to the improvement era, there is a, an article in the October 1931 issue that is extraordinary, <clears throat> but it came out at a time when the brethren were trying to give more form, more structure to priesthood quorums, and the title of the article is Why Priesthood at All? Question mark. The response of that article is the authority response, that this is a legalistic thing. It didn't even go into the uh, supernatural power side of it at that point, because I think they were struggling more to establish the structure of priesthood. But those two components are what you have to keep in mind as you're dealing with this topic. The offices themselves, the descriptions of the offices and the ages of people who hold those offices have been fluid throughout. You know, I was as you're talking about that, one of the thoughts that came to mind, first off, we, we want to paint this picture that when, when we're organizing the church, that the Savior shows up in the room every day and says, this is exactly how I want everything laid out. And most members of the church would tend to see it kind of in that light. And yet... Going back to like the sacrament, for instance, right? We use bread and water, and it used to be bread and wine. And the Savior, at one point through Revelation, says that it really doesn't matter what we use. And I, and I think that speaks volumes to what you're saying, which is the whole point of the church is to bring people unto Christ and not to get caught up in whatever those methods are. The point is with their working. Yeah, let me tell you a story that was told to me by Paul Dunn. Paul became a dear friend. I met him when I was doing the McKay book. He was one of the first people I interviewed. Uh, and over the next three years until his death, we became the closest of friends. Uh, we spent hundreds of hours together. But he, he told me a story that had happened to him early in his career as a general authority. He said, I was in Tonga, and I was supposed to ordain a bishop. 
he said, in Tonga, they pay a lot of attention to their ancestors, and a person may have a dozen names, most of which will be the names of their ancestors. And so, so here I am, a new general authority. I don't speak Tongan, and this guy has 15 names, and I'm supposed to ordain him a bishop. He said, I huddle with the stake president who goes over the names with me, and I think I've got it. So I go over, lay hands on him, start to say his name, and he said, I get to about the fourth name, and the guy goes, hmm, I mispronounced it. So he said, so I left, went back over, huddled with the stake president, started over again. He says, by the third time I'd done this, and I was getting maybe one name deeper into it before I screwed up, he said, finally, I took the slip of paper that had his name on it, put it on his head, put my hands on it, and said, the Lord knows who you are, and I ordained him a bishop. <laughs> he said, when I got back, I felt really guilty, so I went in to talk to President McKay about it. And he said, after he picked himself up off the floor from laughing so hard at the story, he said, Paul, you did exactly the right thing. And he said, there's a lesson in there. The Lord does know who we are. And let's not get hung up over the form to the point where we miss the essence of the whole thing. That's a beautiful story. I, I want to wrap up, Greg, with one last question, and it ties back into the whole purpose of uh, interviewing you and having the podcast to begin with. For members who are struggling with the difficult issues, who are wading their way through church history, doctrine, theology, and are encountering bumps that are completely different than what they used to know or believe, any advice from you on how they can hang on and, and, as Elder Holland said, lead with faith? I have spent a lot of time with a lot of people who have had these problems. If somebody has an open mind, I think I can walk that person across any of those minefields to a safe position on the other side. Now, what's going to be necessary along the way is a willingness to change some paradigms. If you're totally hung up on an ancient Book of Mormon, you may have a problem. If you're willing to look upon the Book of Mormon as the Word of God instead of the words of God, then you'll be okay. The problem that we have is that there aren't enough guides to walk people across those minefields. In an Internet age, people are going to go directly to the Internet when they have questions about anything, religion notwithstanding. Uh, the odds of finding a website that is both sympathetic to Mormonism and containing answers that meet the questioner where he or she needs to be met are almost infinitesimal. That's the problem. We have to do a better job of getting answers out there that meet the questioner where the questions are. That's different than a hierarchy that wants to send the message out that it wants to send. Because if that doesn't meet the questioner at the right place, then that person's gone. Does that make sense to you? It absolutely does. And, and my only concern with that is that those guides who take a less than fundamental uh, view of what the church is and in what ways it is true... If they, if they encounter flack or they encounter resistance from, from those in the church, it, it makes it very difficult for that process to work. Yes, it does. It does, and, and they are messengers who are susceptible to being shot. Right. 
And, and so we've got to find a way to – and I think there's – you're seeing the inklings of that. I think if you paid attention to the last conference, which you mentioned, Elder Uchtdorf's talk, The Four Titles, and when he talked about title number two and the flexibility that he wanted to give members of the church to be different and not to fit a mold, when you look at Elder Holland and his talks about leading with faith and, and that doubt is okay, bring your questions – Elder Christofferson and Elder Anderson in recent conferences talking about what doctrine is and what it isn't. I see the beginnings of that, but I would certainly encourage, uh, along with you, encourage uh, anybody to to allow as much flexibility as possible. And obviously, we have to draw a line. There has to be some line where you at least have to hold on to something to still be LDS, but, but I certainly want to move that line as far as I can so that there's as much flexibility and people feel as welcome as possible while they figure things out. Well, the Internet is both the problem and the answer. It's the problem in the sense that nothing is hidden anymore. And yep. people who have questions are going to go on the Internet and find an avalanche of data there, much of which they're not going to know how to process. They're also going to find people who are quite willing to lead them right out of the church, uh, but at the same time, the Internet has the power of giving people access to information that will be helpful. That puts the responsibility on the church. It puts the responsibility on you with your website and others to try to get content there that will help these people. If that content shows up, word will get around. You won't have to advertise it, and people, I think, will start to gravitate to those sites that really give them the answers that are going to help them out. So blessings yeah. on you and good luck with it. Excellent. Greg Prince, author of David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism. Where can they find your book, Greg? Uh, both of them are still in print. They're available probably through Amazon is the easiest way to get them. Excellent. I'll put links up with this interview, and uh, people can uh, hopefully take a look and, and uh, check out your book. I appreciate you being on today. Thanks very much. Come thou fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of god he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood That day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face.
clothed then in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry, take my ransom soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. to grace how great a debtor daily i am constrained to be let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee prone to wander lord i feel it prone to leave the god i love Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above.